0: Last week, uh, we did begin this little series entitled Addressing the Mess That Is Me. And uh, we started where the Apostle Paul starts in terms of uh, self-assessment. And when Paul looks at himself, he's saying, you need to see what I see. And if you're just looking on the surface of things, you're not looking hard enough because beneath the surface, I'm a mess. He says, I'm hubristes. I am... Uh, a proud person. I'm a violent man, and other people are beneath me. In fact, he says I'm the chief of sinners, and we saw that Paul was very serious about that. That was his self-assessment when it comes to sinners. I'm the I'm the first of the worst, and that sounds kind of bad. But that's where Paul starts under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and so that's kind of where we're starting. And you would say, well, that sounds like bad news. Well, the the bad news, the good news is, the bad news is incomplete because the good news is, if you remain nothing, God can make something out of you. In the very beginning, He created the whole universe ex nihilo, and and that's how God does a creative work in, in you and in me. He can change us, and so you can't spell Messiah without mess, and the mess of your life becomes a part of your message, and so we embrace the starting point of the Apostle Paul and it's very much in keeping with what Jesus communicates to us because on occasion I have run into people and say, well, is it really possible for me to change and my husband to change, my kids to change, for people to change and, and and I know people can be very negative or caustic or critical because, because change comes slowly and sometimes we wonder can a coward become a courage can a patently selfish person ever become a servant and somebody who's really hard and caustic ever become sweet and gentle and jesus says i've got good news for you you can change but it's going to be me who changes you this brings me to this morning's passage and really my favorite verse my brother remembered this uh years ago when we started this fraternity we all had to have a favorite verse and he remembered it's john chapter 15 verse 5 i am the vine You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. That's going to be our focal text for this morning. And we're going to wrap up this series. It's going to be super, super quick. We started on, well, I'm the chief of sinners. But guess what? Jesus can bring about absolute fruitfulness in your life. That's where we're going to end this morning. But let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. We're going to be looking at the whole uh, first five verses of chapter 15 together. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch Can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. God bless the reading of his word, you may be seated. Now there there really is so much that is packed in here, it's packed in very, very tightly. And we're going to go at this by just answering a couple of simple questions. Uh When it comes to abiding in the vine, what do I do and what does God do? It's going to be very simple. And your part and my part when it comes to this whole remaining in the vine thing is, is real simple. You abide. That's your part. You abide. And when you do abide, things happen. Things Change. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if you're abiding in Christ, your character will change inevitably. All the change that happens in you and in me doesn't come from us gritting our teeth, turning over a new leaf, trying harder. It all comes from simply abiding in Him. And so the the question is, okay, well, if it comes to abiding, how do I abide? What do good abiders do? I want to mention two things. I, I told you this would be so simple. Good abiders do two things. Good abiders recognize that they have to constantly abide in Christ. They, they recognize this has to be an occurrence in their life. And then number two, they just make some practical adjustments. They take practical steps to practically abide in, in Jesus on an ongoing basis. Now, we're going to break this down real simple. Good abiders build in, uh, into their lives. Oh, let's go. Are we in the right one? Good abiders recognize their continual. I'm going to have to go back a side. Good abiders recognize their continual need to uh, to abide. Uh, good abiders take Jesus at His word, and, and that is to say, Jesus says, "No branch bears fruit by itself. Neither will you bear fruit apart from Me. Without Me, you can do nothing." Now that is kind of offensive. Jesus, over in Luke chapter 7, verse 23, He explains, Blessed is the one who takes no offense because of me. Why does Jesus say this? Because He knows He's offensive. And and, and what He's saying is, you're, You're a branch, and you don't have any room in your life to say, The branch that is me is better than the branch that is thee. You are not anything without me. You're nothing without me. Now, you would take offense at that unless you really did believe that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. You would take offense at that if you didn't know that Jesus has an agenda for your life, which is to bear fruit that you yourself could never bear apart from Jesus. But it is offensive to a great many people to be told the branch that is you is not better Or more substantial or more powerful or more vital than the branch that is the person seated next to you or isn't any better than the branch that is outside of this congregation or outside of this church or apart from the vine you could do nothing now that takes a little humility to, to swallow that but when you do swallow that and when you do buy that you recognize I've got this continual need to abide and you do I had a friend in South Texas who was uh, manic depressive, and he was a friend, uh, and he did well when he was taking his medicine. And I have nothing against people taking medicine, I think it's fantastic. If you eat vegetables and fruit to maintain your health, and God gives you a pill that also helps you to maintain your health, fantastic, take it, that's great. And my friend did great when he was taking the pill, but when he got off of his medication, Guess what happened? After about two or three weeks, he would typically kind of shoot up into this manic phase or phase, and then he would just kind of run over people. And he was very destructive, especially to his wife. And then he would realize, oh, you know, I better get back on my medication, especially after he cratered from his manic to a depressive state. Then he'd get on his medication. And then a month later, everything was normal. And he would go through the same routine, which was, I think I'm okay. And it's like, buddy, the reason you're okay is because you're taking your medicine. But after a while, you just take that one, just a simple little pill. Like, well, I think I'm okay now. I don't need this pill anymore. And they take it off and then a couple of weeks, three weeks later and it was all out of his system and he'd go through the whole thing, repeat the process. Same thing happens actually with Christians. They're abiding. And then all of a sudden, it's like, you know, I think I'm fine. I don't know that I need to do this and this and this. And, I, you know, I think the branch that is me is probably better than the branch that is thee. And then they stop abiding. And before you know it, they, they dry up and the fruit's gone. How long does it take for that branch, when it's cut off from the vine, to kind of shrivel up or the fruit to fall off? I don't know. It's usually not within an hour. Or it's usually not within a day depending on how thick the branch is compared to the stem or the trunk that it's attached to. But over time, when that branch gets cut off, you're going to see it's going to shrivel. The fruit's going to fall off. There's not going to be fruit the next season or the next. You know why that happens? Because people who've been abiding for a while forget, oh, the reason that I'm fruitful in the first place is because I'm abiding in Christ. Prior to coming to Christ, they recognize recognized my life wasn't what it needed to be. Then they become a Christian. They start abiding in Christ. And then after two or three years, everything's okay now. I'm fine. And then they're not because they don't take Jesus at his word or we have a tendency to think more highly of our branch than we ought to. And I'm just going to tell you, your branch isn't any different than anybody else's branch. It's not about the branch. It's about the vibe. And if you say, well, I'm not the cheapest. Thing. I'm not as bad as this person. My branch is better than your branch. You're arrogant. And if you take offense at me saying that you're arrogant to think that you're better than the person next to you, then you're arrogant. You've just kind of demonstrated it. Jesus is saying, hey, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can't bear fruit. I'm the vine. You're the branch. It's not that I don't want, it's not that I don't value you as the wonderful branch that can produce this fruit, but you cut yourself off from me. And you will shrivel up, and nothing good will come through you. Not this God honoring. So good abiders recognize that. They they get the humility of what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Good abiders also, because they recognize apart from him they can do nothing, they will also build into their lives some habits of abiding. And they're very simple I'm going to mention just five, and you could come up with some other ones. These are just examples of what abiders do. Number one, you create anchor points throughout the day that put your focus on Christ. Now, these don't make you a better person. They just keep you connected to the one who gives you your vitality. And some anchor points might be you pray in the morning or you pray at night or you pray in the middle of the day or you pray before meals. And it's like maybe it's just the same prayer. God God bless us for. Bless you for the food. Thank you for the food. Amen. Whatever. Or it's just good morning, God, and that's the extent of your prayer, but you've got anchor points. And so continually throughout the day, you recognize that you're abiding in His presence. Now, why is all of this important, continually reminding yourself that you're in His presence? Well, it helps you to experience what it is that has been given to you. Laura Neiser, who's members of this church, she she uh, gave a great illustration several years ago about this to me. She she talked about how when you go to SeaWorld, World. There is this thing called the splash zone. You're in the first 5, 10, 15 rows. The experience when you're near or in the presence of Shamu is a lot different than if you're seated way up at the top transcending the show, looking down on the show. If you're under the show or close to the show, you get splashed, you get wet. Your experience is different. Only when you draw near to Christ, you don't get salt water all over your face. You're bathed in the Holy Spirit and you experience His grace and His mercy. And so you want to make sure that consistently you're seated in the right seats. This helps you to do this, those ritual anchor points. Now, they don't have to be long, but they're anchor points. Number two, another suggestion, and some of you are better at this than me, you set up your physical environment with lots of little reminders of God's presence. Some of you like process. Some of you, you've got a picture of of some event or person in your life that was instrumental in bringing you to Christ. Or there's a memento of some retreat, and you set up your environment in a way that it reminds you of His presence. Maybe it's a. a, When I was growing up, in the living room we had a family Bible. Did we ever read the family Bible? No. We never. You know, sorry, mom and dad, y'all might be watching, but we never read the family Bible. It was huge. It was big. What was the point? I'm like, we never read that thing. Well, you know what? We did read our Bibles and we did go to church and we did pray. But we had this memento in the middle of the living room. It was a family Bible. And I look back on that and I go, you know, that was a good thing. Even though we didn't read that particular Bible, it was a reminder of God's presence in the center of the living room. It was fine. Number three, you cultivate relationships with people whose lives produce fruit. And this is why Sunday school or small group is not just an anchor point or a ritualistic experience. You want to be connected to other people whose lives are connected to, to God. I was encouraged before the service. Um, you know, Joe Vickers was saying, hey, I want to be a part of this. I know the men are, you're going to have a men's Bible study or small group or something on Wednesday nights or Thursday nights. We don't know where it's going to be. And, and Joe was like, hey, I'd like to come to this. And I'm like, you know, you teach. You go everything. Joe, this is only for sinners. I'm sorry. I say, hey, hey, you know, I'm one of those too. Can I come? I say, like, okay, great. It's nice to be around people who, you know, at the tender age of 87 are still wanting to, you know, be involved in ministry. And I don't know if I'm going to teach him anything. He might be teaching me more than I teach him. But you're around a life that is intent on serving Jesus. That does you good. That's why you be in a Sunday school class or a small group or Connected, you know, maybe it's maybe it's online or something. But as long as you've got some friends in your life that you can pour into, and they'll pour back into you, you need this. Don't think that you don't. It's part of abiding. And I, I have to tell you this too: uh, when it comes to the chief of sinners, I love our church staff because I, you know, I look at I look at Alan and Jonathan over here. You think you guys are great sinners? No. But I mean, you know, they don't take offense at this. I, you know, we talk about this all the time, and, and you know, and Brett, you know how Brett is, and you know, Jesus is everything; we're nothing. It's great to be around people who have that kind of acknowledgment. It really is. It does your heart good. Not every church is filled with religious stick in the nuts. We've got some great people of authentic humility who would say, no, no, I think I'm at the front of the line. I, I think I need God's grace as much or more than anybody else. That's a so refreshing. Which, by the way, I'm just mentioning the small groups. We do have sign-ups over here uh, for our, our home groups. Please make a point of that because in a couple of weeks, actually basically two weeks from now, we're going to be starting the the in-home small groups. And you might want to be a part of one of those. So so make it a point to sign up. And they're also on these, these tables, these opportunities. And you can also do it online, of course, for those of you who are watching. All right, other uh, anchor points or things that are important for people who abide. Make sure that your time in the Scripture is spent in an attitude of prayer. That is to say, you want to make sure that you get the Scripture into you as much as you get into the Scripture. Okay. Uh, number five, you come together with your church family for worship. And I, I realize these are funky times, and a lot of people are concerned about COVID. And my mom's got COVID, and most of my family's had COVID. And, you know, I get it. I, You know, honestly, I do. But as best you can, you need to be keeping up your connection with your church family in times of worship. This is just what people who abide do. Now, some of you are saying, okay, well, that's great. I'm, you know, I'm I'm abiding. This is fantastic. I've got these disciplines and I know that I need to do this. And okay, good. But there's something else going on besides just you and Jesus because Jesus doesn't just mention the, the branch and the vine. There's another character that comes to the forefront in the five verses that we looked at and that is the vine dresser. There's you and Jesus but then there's the vine dresser, the gardener, and he has a role to play too. And you understand what his role is because if you don't understand what his role is, you will not respond appropriately to what it is that he is doing in your life as the vine dresser. So what is it that God is doing as the vine dresser, as the gardener? There are two things that come to the forefront here. One is he's removing the dead branches. Okay. And uh, the other thing is he's pruning, and we'll talk talk about these one at a time. He's looking for the dead branches to get rid of them. Now, this implies a certain amount of intentionality. That is to say, when God goes through your life looking for the dead branches and pulling them off, he's it, this is not the image of somebody who has the trimmers or some you know major chainsaw and he just goes by the bushes and goes zzzz. Zzz. You know, he's going through in an intimate, detailed way, one branch at a time. And he's looking for every branch that is dead. And they say, what's a dead branch? A dead branch is something that's not bearing fruit. The way you can tell if a branch is only apparently connected to the vine, but not actually, uh, that's only, you know, maybe mechanically, uh, or superficially connected, but not, but not vitally connected, is the branch that is not bearing fruit, it's, not connected. Uh, and if it's not fruitful, God's going to go in there and cut it off or pull it off or break it off. Because if you don't take off the dead leaves or the dead branches, it's going to be havoc or be difficult or hard on all of the other healthy branches. And we had a horticulture list in the first service. Uh, Kate, and she basically is in charge of about 200 volunteers in Georgetown and all the rest. And she affirmed, you know, that's absolutely right because you can get insects and you can get all kinds of decay into the plant through the dead branches. And so you got to make sure if you're caring about the plant and its productivity, you take off all the dead branches. Now, in particular, Jesus points to two to fruit in this passage in chapter 15. He goes on and says, here's the fruit that I'm looking for. It's love and it's obedience. Verse 9, Jesus says, As the fathers loved me, so I have loved you. And then in verse 10, he goes on and says, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. Love and the obedience uh, to God in that love, they absolutely go hand in hand with one another. Most of you have seen, probably you've seen it multiple times, Princess Bride, where farm boy Wesley is saying to the beautiful princess, what? As you wish. Okay, we had... Twelve women and one guy that remembered, okay, as you wish. Because that's communicating, you know, I love you. I, I want to do what makes you happy. I want to submit my will to your will. It's kind of corny, but it's true. And so as a Christian, when you're reading the Bible, you're reading it not to find the loophole so that you don't have to do much. You're trying to find out what is it that I can possibly do so as to bring pleasure to God because love and obedience go hand in hand. You want to do what it is that God would have you to do. Now, some of you are saying, okay, well, I love the Lord. I don't love him perfectly, but the fruit is there. It's just growing. And I uh, I obey God. It's just not perfectly. There's some things I know I need to grow in, so I'm good. God doesn't have to tear off any branches in my life. In fact, some people would say, I kind of, they're not going to say it like this, but they would say, I kind of came to Christ. I wanted to become a Christian so I could get God to leave me alone. I felt, you know, really, you know what I'm saying? I felt convicted and I felt like I needed to become a Christian and now that I'm a Christian and there's enough fruit growing, you know, God can kind of leave me alone. I've got Jesus on my side. and Okay, I've got some news for you. Even if you've got some little fruit and and you're moving in the right direction, you can't say, now God's going to leave me alone because God doesn't just tear off the dead branches. He prunes even those... Spaces that maybe look pretty fruitful. It it looks very, very hopeful. He's pruning the live branches so that they will bear even more fruit. If you go to uh, a vineyard after a time of pruning, you'll be horrified. You'll you'll think this gardener doesn't know what in the world they're doing. Because you look on the ground, there's a lot of, leaves and maybe even some apparently healthy stems and there might be little clusters even of incipient grapes, of little baby grapes. You say, what were you doing? You cut all this stuff off and it looks to be really healthy. And the gardener is going to tell you, the vine dresser is going to tell you, hey, who are you to correct me? I know what I'm doing. And there was too much fruit or there were too many leaves. And I had to cut back a few areas because if I didn't do this, The areas that were healthy that I thought had the most hope and promise were going to get the nutrition or the life that they needed. And so on occasion, you cut a few things back. You're not being punished if the vine dresser cuts a few things back that look pretty good to you. It's just that sometimes the vine dresser has an agenda for your life or for my life for us to be drawing strength more directly from the vine than maybe um, something else at the moment. Now look, let me change the metaphor a little bit because maybe you understand this. If you're a, if you're a parent, you recognize that sometimes when you discipline a child, you're not disciplining them because they did something wrong. You're actually putting some discipline into their lives because you want them to be more fruitful than they already are. When I was younger, I had parents that made me do chores. And I guess, you know, as a parent, I could say to my kids as they're growing up, look, we could pay somebody to mow the yard, but you're going to do it. Mom could come pick up your room, but you're going to do it. We do want to go to XYZ location, but first you're going to do A, B, and C. We're not mad at you. In fact, you haven't done anything wrong, but you've got chores. There are certain expectations that you're going to meet. You do that as a parent all the time. Coaches will introduce in a strategic manner a certain amount of cutting and pain. When I was playing sports in high school, and some of you can identify with this, I was nothing special, really, But we had a really, really good team. And we had a coach that ran us to death after every basketball practice. We hadn't done anything wrong necessarily. We were just going to run. And sometimes we ran until we threw up. Literally. Did I think that my coach hated me? Yes. (laughs) No. Well, maybe not. But he was a Baptist deacon. And he was really good at inflicting pain on little Baptist boys, you know. And so... I, you know, sometimes I thought you probably went too far, but he didn't. We ran, we, we won district three years in a row, undefeated and all the rest. Of it. It's not because we were super tall or super great. We just, we were in great condition. He was disciplining us, not because we'd done anything wrong, but because he wanted us to be better. You you do that all the time in the military. There's this thing, you know, basic training that people go through, and you can go on YouTube and you can see really interesting videos of people who are going through SEAL training or whatever. There's this thing called Schadenfreude. I don't know if you ever heard the term. It's like a, it's like a a dark joy at somebody else's pain. This is why these are really popular videos because you like, I like to watch the Marines get sprayed in the face with mace and then they get, you know, their hands are tied behind their back, and then they've got to run through all these other guys that are beating them up, and they've got these tasks to perform, and it's like crazy. And you think, do their sergeants hate them? Well, no, but if they survive these certain training exercises, or learn to tune out pain, or hold their breath for four minutes without drowning, or whatever, when they get through all of the pain that was inflicted on them intentionally in appropriate doses they get out the other side and they're able to perform in a way that they couldn't have performed before they they weren't being hurt because they were doing anything wrong they were just allowed to hurt because it helped them to grow sometimes the gardener just comes along and there's the scissors hurt and it looks like that little cluster of grapes had a lot of promise But the Father knows what He's doing. That's part of the process of your growth. Now, now that we know that this is what the gardener does, he tears off the branches that don't bear fruit. And sometimes even those places that seem hopeful kind of get cut back in a way that we didn't anticipate or don't make sense to us in the moment. There's something that we need to be thinking through in terms of, well, how do we respond to this? Well, one, here's how you respond to the gardener. First off, you, you recognize uh, I need I need to trust Him. You know, I, well, I need to learn. We'll go in the order of the notes. I need to learn. Why did this happen? Now, I'm not saying that, that uh, things... We don't want to blame God for evil. There are these pockets of things that God does that have nothing to do with God. It's called sin. It's called evil. But God always has a plan in everything and for everything and And sometimes in the midst of that cutting and you're hurting and you're bleeding, you need to be asking the question, okay, so why did that get cut? Sometimes the answer is, well, there was a fruitless thing in my life that needed to be taken care of. Oftentimes part of the answer is, I guess, and it's true in the rearview mirror, I can look at times that were very hurtful and I had loss. And I can say, you know, I was drawing from this person or this teacher or this job or this relationship or career, whatever it was. I was maybe slurping my life from this. And what God wants me to do, at least in this moment of loss, is start drinking more directly from Him. And oftentimes people will discover at that point of adjustment that they had more in Christ than they ever thought they did before. If Christ is not everything to you, God will take away everything until Christ is everything for you. And when Christ is everything for you, then you become everything that Christ would have you to be. When everything else is taken away and Christ is all that you have, you find that Christ is all that you need. I can't answer the question for you in every situation or circumstance. I just know this. There's always something to learn when a branch gets pulled off or a a, a pruning event occurs. Now, this is not to say um, I want to be calloused toward anybody that's experiencing pain. I, I thought about this in the first service. You know, if... If uh, Shelby comes home, she used to play basketball. She came home and it's like, man, Coach ran me to death and I am so tired and worn out and all the rest. I'm probably to a degree going to say, well, that's the way it is. You can always quit. But if you do, you're going to have more chores at home than you know what to do with. So suck it up, buttercup. I mean, I probably would say something like that. Um, And I think good parents will frequently especially if their child is disciplined at school, they will frequently take the side of their kids. I think that's true. But on occasion, if your child falls and skins their knee and they're bleeding, I don't know that you pick them up and say, what can you learn from this? You know, sometimes you just hug them and put a Band-Aid on them and rush them to the hospital. It just kind of depends on the occasion. But whatever the circumstance is or situation, there is something to learn. And that brings us to the second thing, you trust. You, you have to trust that God knows what He's doing. Now, here's where it gets really tough because some of you are saying, but you, know, you want me to trust God? Do you know this and this and this? And Okay, I get it. But you will have, and I'm speaking from personal experience, you will have... An easier time trusting God if you get to a point in your own life where you distrust your own understanding. Maybe the reason you're having a hard time trusting God's schedule or agenda or character building process or whatever the case is, maybe the reason you're having a hard time trusting is you trust too much in you. Maybe. Again, I'm not trying to be hard on anybody. I'm just saying as the chief of sinners who God is still working on, I recognize in those moments when I want to judge God, that always happens because I think too highly of my own judgments. There's a a, a third thing in in here, and uh, we'll go ahead and put that up on there. I want to read it like it's on the screen draw near, I, I was thinking cling to him, when you're going through the process or when the gardener's going through the process of pruning or taking away fruitless branches, your tendency and my tendency is to step back. It's to withdraw. The whole point, though, is so that you will draw more cleanly, more fully from the vine. Uh, But the reason we have a tendency to draw back or withdraw is because we have gotten to this point where we associate pain with a lack of concern or love. Oh, I I have pain, therefore whoever is allowing this or inflicting this could care less about me. Let me tell you why that's wrong on, on, on a couple of different levels. Maybe this will help you. First off, let, let's really think about this from the perspective of, let's say, a teacher. I won't tell you who. My wife happens to be a teacher. I don't want her to get in trouble. But a certain teacher told me that, um, you know, over the last couple of years, there's been explicit or maybe implicit communication along the lines of, hey, this is COVID. Maybe we need to grade the kids easier, give them a break. If they're just kind of close, go ahead and pass them. And so maybe the severity or standards have been compromised a little bit, just the time we're in. Well, fortunately, Gina's kind of outside of that circle. She she deals with, with students that don't have those types of uh, needs or challenges. But let me just suggest to you that if a teacher knows you deserve a C and they give you an A, because it'll just let's not make waves, I don't want to have a conference with the parents, and I'm okay with lackluster, underperforming, whatever, let's just keep moving. I want to suggest to you that maybe the teacher who is okay with giving the C when it's deserved and is up to the conflict with the angry child or the parents who don't understand, I would suggest that maybe that teacher who is good with inflicting a certain amount of appropriate pain or disappointment cares about the kids a little bit more. Or who's willing to fight the principal. And this is not the situation. But I was just saying, if they had to go toe-to-toe with the principal or the administration or the parents or the child because they're just trying to help the child to advance and that's why they're given the homework and that's why they're grading accurately, maybe the parent, maybe the teacher who inflicts more pain or the coach, they actually care. Maybe the drill sergeant who puts them through all of the training as opposed to half of the training, maybe they're not so bad. Maybe they're really good. I I think every time I have been disappointed with God and I've trusted my own understanding more than Him, God has taken the risk and put Himself in a place where He knew I was going to get mad at Him, that I was going to judge Him. He was going to get some pushback from me. And God just went ahead and did what he did, even though he knew that he might get a negative response from his child. A child who judged the parent or the vine who judged the vine dresser. But God didn't care. Actually, God did care. He cared so much that he was willing to endure my insolence. That's one way to look at it. Maybe that helps. There's something else though I think that we need to keep in mind as the vine dresser does what the vine dresser does. Just, let me just mention this too. I have learned that the vine dresser when he's dealing with me d- deals with me the same way he deals with other people. He never really deals with me according to my schedule and he doesn't deal with me according to my plans. And so I can't play God even with my own life. So you know, I gotta be careful not to play God in somebody else's life too. The way the vine dresser's dealing with me is the way the vine dresser's dealing with someone else and so I think it's really crazy for me to be putting timetable, schedule, expectations on other people. I can't even play God in my own life, you know, because I'm not God. But there's something else, too, I think we really do need to keep in mind. Have you ever been reading this passage? Because you've probably heard this before. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Have you ever read that and you thought, okay, what's the vine part and what's the branch part? You ever see a vine? You go like, oh, that's where the vine stops and that's where the branch part starts. Like what? I just was at a wedding for my uh, wedding celebration reception. This was, I don't know, three, four weeks ago with my son. And there was this trellis outside the place where we stayed and it must have been 20 feet wide and the whole thing was covered with a vine. And I thought, okay, where's the vine part and where's the branch part? I have no idea. The whole thing looks like vine or the whole thing looks like branches. What, what? Here's part of the point. When you're distinguishing the branch from the vine, they're distinguishable only maybe in terms of size. You might say, well, here's the vine and here's the branch. How do you tell? The branch is smaller. But in terms of its appearance, in terms of what's running through it, it's the same. You remember in Antioch, that's where Christians were first called Christians, the book of Acts tells us. The word Christians meant little Christs. Maybe they meant it as an insult, but I think that's a pretty good way of going at it. The difference between a Christian and Christ ought to be, I'm sorry. Is there a bug over there? You are raising your hand? Oh, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a fly. Okay, just for those of you that are wondering, hey, what happened in the front row? Does that always occur? Are you that kind of a church? Let me, let me come down. Let me come down here, lay hands on you, and you fall on the floor. Sometimes that's just a fly. Okay, there we go. Uh, yeah, you know, we had this fly earlier, and I just I couldn't get rid of it. You know, I'm sorry. Anyway, really, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for calling you out on national uh, TV, Audrey Prater. Uh, anyways, uh, okay, yeah, see, I'm the chief of centers. See, you agree. Uh, okay, I digress. Woo, fly, you know, swirl. Uh fly. Uh, look, the vine is different only in terms of its size, not in terms of its nature. Well, what does that mean? As the vine goes, so to the branches or, or let me put it like this jesus is the vine what's true of him yeah. love and obedience to the father to the point that he was absolutely sinless in heart and in deed love and obedience that's the first fruit he wants us to produce and you look at jesus life and you go hey here's a guy who sacrificed here's somebody who embraced suffering and jesus says if you follow me you're gonna have to take up your cross in order to do that I'm not a wine expert. You would expect that as a Baptist pastor, I would know everything about wine, right? But I don't. So I I did look this up, and I got this affirmed by Kate, who's a horticulturalist in the first service. And let me tell you something about wine. There's this little little statement, little saying, uh, the struggling vine makes the best wine. That's true. Here's why. There's this guy, Steve Smith. He's a horticulturalist. He's a, a vine dresser. And he says... Think of it from the vine's perspective, producing the best wine. The vine will say, I'm not here to make the best wine. The vine would say, I'm here to assure the survival of my species. So the vine says, if I'm in this ground that is just overflowing with moisture and it's just laden with nutrients, I'm going to spend all my energy, sugar, I'm going to send all my energy to my shoots and to my leaves. But I'm not going to send much energy, sugar, to the grapes because if if they just fall on the ground right where they are, that's fantastic. We're going to thrive right where I am. But if the soil is a little bit lacking and there's not quite enough moisture and I'm really struggling to survive, I'm going to send more of my energy, sugar, to the grapes so the birds will come and take the grapes and then they'll spread my seed to land that is more fertile. What's good for the birds is good for humans. The struggling vine makes the best wine. There's a little struggle, some pruning. God comes in in a very individualistic, specific way, and he takes out these branches that are broken or he prunes the places that kind of surprised you. You go with it. You know why? Because you recognize Christ needs to be reflected in me. And when my heartbeat beats with jesus you know what i say to the father i say the same thing to the father that jesus says not my will but thine be done or put a little bit differently god as you wish and sometimes it's through the branches being pulled off sometimes it's through the pruning but eventually god brings us all as we abide in christ and cling to him he brings us to this point where the fruit that we do bear is love and it is obedience and it produces a wine that brings joy to the Father oh and is also tasty to other people around us and as we abide in him what happens in us is supernatural because it's not natural to you and it's not natural to me, we become so others oriented like Christ that the Father finds pleasure and the other people around us find pleasure and the gospel gets spread to all kinds of arenas around us And it's because God had His way in our lives. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we know that it's not... Jesus didn't say we can't do good stuff without Him. But when it comes to spreading the gospel, when it comes to portraying Christ, when it comes to having the character of Christ and being little Christs and producing fruit that is fit for the the wine of the end time celebration we know it comes by abiding in christ and not in ourselves paul paul is right there's hubris to the core of who we are to the point where we would take offense at jesus when he tells us that apart from him we can do nothing paul was right jesus is right it's obviously right But that doesn't mean that producing the fruit of love and obedience in a context of sacrifice is always easy. So God, I just pray you would help us in humility to receive your word that we must abide and to put in place things that would help us to abide. And then when the fruit comes, for us to give you all the praise and all the glory because it's just the vine, not the branch. Help us to learn. Help us to trust. Help us to lean in. That you would be well pleased with what develops in us. Lord, I don't know really what else to ask. Just pray your way, way would be done in us. And if there are any who have yet to step into relationship with the true vine, I pray that they would simply acknowledge Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. It's not just that I do bad things, it's that I, I want to act independently. It's that I think that the branch that is me is better than everybody else. And I think I don't need you. And, and I'm just going to operate on my own and you know, that kind of pride. Lord, I, I, I think some people here, they might say, you know, I'm looking at my sin a little bit differently. It's not just the things that I do that are bad. It's this disposition of independence and separation from you. And I recognize that, God, that's the problem. And so, God, I acknowledge that I I have sinned. It's not just that I did wrong. I did the wrong knowing it to be wrong. and I, And it's not even just what I did. It's my disposition toward you. I've I've not trusted you. I've been proud and arrogant and condescending to people around me. I am a sinner and I need a Savior. So God, in this moment, I confess that that I need you, that I need salvation, that, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died, and he obeyed perfectly and he loved wholeheartedly without reservation other people, and God. So Lord, I, I pray that you, you would apply to my life what Jesus has done for me. Thank you, God, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you prayed that, I want to encourage